Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is pediatric anesthesiologist and professor at Stanford University Medical Center, Dr. Greg Hammer. His new book is Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. Burnout is on the rise, and it's a problem we can't afford to ignore. The rising costs of burnout are staggering as healthcare professionals sacrifice their health, happiness, and relationships. But there is a solution. International speaker Dr. Greg Hammer created Gain Without Pain, which the acronym is Gratitude, Acceptance, Intention, and Non-Judgment, so that healthcare professionals can prevent burnout and reclaim happiness. This proven path toward personal resilience can be implemented by anyone anywhere in just a few minutes a day. This increased resilience could save your practice, your patients, your marriage, or even your life. For more than two decades, Dr. Hammer has been a popular lecturer and a featured speaker at Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, USC, Northwestern, and Stanford Universities. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Thank you very much, Catherine. It's great to be with you. Great to have you here. Well, taught your book is, should I say it's timely or a burnout? Uh, <laughs> given this pandemic, it seems to me that burnout is the topic of the day. Um, so let's just begin. Maybe we, what is burnout when we're talking about healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses? Um, it is. It has been on the rise even before this pandemic. Obviously, your book. But uh, so, what constitutes burnout? Sure, Catherine. Well, burnout is experienced by many people. Um, it could be uh, somebody at home taking care of kids. Even it could be people in a variety of professions. But in the medical profession, it's been a particular problem, and the consequences are particularly grave. Burnout might be described as. Uh, exhaustion, emotional and physical exhaustion, and it's caused by stressors that may be internal and or external, the job, the circumstances, etc. And burnout was uh, experienced by more than half of physicians even before the pandemic, so it's uh, undoubtedly a higher number now. And uh, The consequences include just a decrement in the quality of medical care, more medical errors, surgical errors, uh, more mortality or death in the hospital. And so burnout among healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, and others has uh, particularly grave consequences for patients and the healthcare professionals themselves. Well, as I started out and I said burnout is on the rise, maybe we could take it back of a little bit and why is it why has it why has it been on the rise so even as you say even before the pandemic burnout has been on the rise for healthcare professionals and it's a problem in terms of you know their own health and the health of their patients so why has it been on the rise are there you say internal external reasons what are the reasons there have been a lot of changes in healthcare, as there have in other sectors of the economy. But in particular with healthcare, there's been an increasing emphasis on value and uh, an increasing number of metrics that are applied to physicians and others in clinics and hospitals, for example. So there's been a sense of loss of autonomy, uh, more work uh, in the same amount of time, and and 
things uh, have developed, such as uh, the electronic medical record. And I liken that to the agricultural revolution, which took place 12,000 years ago. It seemed like a great idea to stop hunting and gathering and build a home and plow a field and so on. But it, it although it yielded uh, grapefruit, let's say, not to uh, make a terrible pun, but uh, it also had consequences. And that is that the workday in the hunting and gathering era was uh, three or four hours a day. The rest of the time people spent with their families and communities. And after the uh, agricultural revolution on farms, the workday was almost never ending. And so and we've, we have many elements of our economy and technology that are double-edged swords. And the electronic medical record, among other things, is one. It, it actually can create more work for providers and they end up taking that work home and doing their charts at home in the evening. And it's also that physicians, for example, have had to see more patients in a day. And, and as I said, there have been an increasing number of metrics applied to physicians measuring the quality of care. And uh, that means uh, we put a lot of emphasis on patient satisfaction. And when uh, a doctor in a clinic, for example, has to see 20% more patients in a day and doesn't have the resources, the exam rooms, the support staff, the patients are waiting in the waiting room longer and spending less time with the physicians. And so their satisfaction scores go down uh, unrelated to anything uh, under the power of the physician to correct. And so the, the, the clinic and hospital management come down on the physicians and you can just imagine the frustration. And these things have been under development and on the rise for the last decade or so. And I think they've brought a lot of stress to the medical profession. Yeah, I think uh, friends, uh, friends, people who are doctors who are friends of mine and also others who are colleagues, uh, I think, what, and maybe this you're describing this, but like the medical profession, doctors are expected to run a business also. And to be, I mean, some doctors get MBAs or many of them get MBAs after getting an, uh, an MD. So you're running, you're, you're being a doctor, but you're also running a business, and those aren't really the same skills. It seems to me that's a lot of pressure as well. Yes, and, and even for those who aren't in charge of running their practice in, in that way, like a group practice, nevertheless, the hospitals have come under more economic pressure as reimbursement rates have gone down. And let's face it, the, you know, patients are living longer. They're coming to the clinics and hospitals sicker. The technology and medical therapies have become more complex and, and advanced, and so the whole system is kind of moving in a direction that creates a lot of stress uh, on the healthcare professionals and the patients themselves. So, uh, yes, and, and, and medicine is a business, and uh, I think we've all had to, uh, you know, learn to live with that in a greater sense. And, it, and it's not unique to medicine, but certainly at the... the uh, the fallout in medicine may be more significant than it is in, in other sectors just because of the fact that literally lives are on the line. How does telemedicine fit into this, or how do you see it fitting into this? Because obviously now with the pandemic, there's a lot more telemedicine. To me, as a consumer, or as, uh, it seems like a good thing. Um, what's your take? What, yeah, let's hear. Well, how do you think that will affect burnout, for instance, with doctors and yeah, nurses? Well, that's a- 
Yeah, yeah that, that's actually a fascinating question, Catherine. Uh, you know, as well as anesthesia, I practice intensive care medicine. We've been doing telemedicine for some in intensive care, have been providing uh, telemedicine support to outlying hospitals for some time. But in terms of patients being seen by their physicians uh, while the patient may be at home and uh, the doctor may be at home or in their office, that may be uh, one of the silver linings to this. Uh, I think there will be some changes made in medical care based on conditions that are becoming more firmly established during the pandemic. And telemedicine uh, makes a lot of sense under many circumstances. It doesn't, you know, replace the hands-on exam and, and counseling that may be done in person, but it may be a good supplement to care, especially in primary care specialties where a lot can be done. Um, you know, even people with a skin rash or some other complaints may be able to photograph and, and show on a telemedicine exam what, what is their chief complaint. Uh, but just generally counseling and, and much of primary care and, and even some subspecialty care can occur that way. So, you know, just as in schools where kids are doing online learning, that may not work for all the children, but it may be actually a good thing for some types of learners and uh, may decompress the crowding in classrooms and so on. So in education and in medicine, uh, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how things develop after the pandemic is winding down or has, has passed. There may be some, some silver linings indeed. Yeah, it would seem to me there would be. I, I'm thinking of my own kids in the past. I had three boys, and it seemed to me I was in the emergency room every other week. That's an exaggeration. But so many times, as you described it, you know, I could, it seemed, if, if the doctor could just look and, and look at a rash, for instance, is some, you know, or pink eye or all those kinds of things, do I have to go and sit in an ER for it? It's not good for me, the kids, or the doctors, or the, you know, so those kinds of things. Um so that is, it would seem to me, to be a silver lining, less less pressure on everyone. Um, what happens to, I mean, I have a statistic here that uh, 30%, we're talk, now talking about nursing graduates, 30% of new nursing graduates are leaving the profession within two years. Now at a time when we need nurses more than ever, it would seem to me. Um, that's a, that's almost, well, it's not half, but it's almost half. Um that, how do we mitigate that, change that statistic? Yeah, it is a staggering one. Again, it's, uh, I think a lot of people go into nursing as, you know, in, uh, you know, become physicians because of very altruistic beliefs. And as medicine has become more under economic pressure, the nurses have to see, for example, a nurse who takes care of inpatients on a medical or surgical ward has to have a greater patient load. So instead of taking care of four or five patients, they're taking care of seven or eight patients. And it's just not uh, not what they signed up for in some cases, unfortunately. So indeed, burnout doesn't just affect physicians. It affects nurses and others as well. And so, uh, uh, and, and there have also been economic pressures. Cost of housing in many areas has gone up. So it's... Uh, you know, it, it takes true dedication to uh, hang in there as a nurse. There's no question about it. You know, I didn't start off the interview asking you why you wrote the book. Uh, obviously, it comes from your experiences. Um, 
as a physician and in the, uh, in the healthcare profession, but can you give us some examples, like, you know, specific examples uh, in your own experiences, maybe your experience yourself? I mean, have you experienced burnout? Um, and if you have, how you've been able to um, recuperate from it or what have you done personally or to prevent sure. burnout? Yeah. Sure. Well, let me just, if I could, just uh, back up a little bit and say that I, uh, we in the WellMD program at Stanford have a rubric for the drivers of burnout, which also may point to the remedies. And there are really three categories. So uh, the first one, as we touched on, is the, is the efficiency of practice. That is, for example, physicians are being asked to see more patients. In a, in a limited period of time, et cetera, et cetera. So this leads to practice inefficiencies. It keeps people in the clinic later and later in the day or, or having them take work home and do their charting on electronic medical record platforms. A second category is the culture of medicine. And, of course, doctors are taught to take care of the patient first, always. And that often comes at the expense of taking care of themselves as they get busier and busier not taking lunch breaks or even bathroom breaks under some circumstances and, and just being driven harder and harder. And that's been the culture and that needs to change. And the third category is personal resilience. And that's been my main interest. And, uh, we can all be more resilient. And I started, uh, I've been a longtime meditator and, and student of Advaita and I've had my own meditation practice and, I got very involved in our wellness program at Stanford, and I started giving talks on wellness uh, to larger audiences around the U.S. and then around the world, and, and I had some sabbatical time do me, and I thought, what am I going to do? I need to stay here because I have my laboratory as well, and I just figured this message was so resonant, this gain message, which I had sort of evolved, and I thought, you know, I, I really would like to share this with people, and so that's what really drove me to write, write the book. Um, as I say in the book, I lost my son three years ago at the age of 29. And after that happened, as you can imagine, um, you know, I was under a lot of stress and, and really didn't have time to grieve properly. And so I, I was becoming burnout, burned out. I was noticing that I had less patience at work. And that feeling you have at the end of the day when you're when your patience is wearing thin, that was happening earlier and earlier in the day. You know, I'd be fine when I got to the hospital in the morning and made rounds with the, with the trainees and so on. And I would just find that little things would become more and more aggravating. And so I did have signs of burnout and I thought, okay, well, I've got this practice of resilience of, of meditation and so on. I really need to redouble my efforts to focus on that. And so, uh, you know, I sort of, morphed my practice into this gain practice and, and do a gain meditation myself every morning and, and then practice the gain elements during the day. And that's what the book is all about. And, and it is based, of course, on my personal experience. Yeah, I mean, losing a child, of course. I mean, that's the most devastating thing that can happen to, to anyone. Um, so um, to be able to get through that in the way that you have and then sharing that with everybody um, is, is such a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a really positive thing for not only for you, but for everybody you're doing it for. Uh, 
I guess the question is, um, you keep on going. Um, now that we have this pandemic, which is another crisis on top of all your personal crises, and how, how I guess you know you, um, you're res- you seem to me. I mean, you're very resilient, and um, how, how do you maintain that? I guess. Well, Continue. I'll tell you, Catherine. I maintain it through the gain method. So you know, just to go into that in a little bit more depth. Yeah, in detail. Yeah. Sure. The first thing is gratitude. Um, I think gratitude is one of the four pillars of happiness. It's one that everybody's familiar with. A lot of people describe the importance of gratitude. And as I say in the book, you can be blind and happy. You can be deaf and happy. You can have other physical disabilities and be happy. But you'll never find a happy person who's not grateful. And we all have a lot for which to be grateful. And a good example, actually, is that relates to the pandemic itself, as awful as this is. And you certainly out in the you know, New York area have, have seen the worst of it. But as bad as it is around the country, uh, let's think back and learn a little bit about the influenza pandemic of 1918. Uh, it was actually much worse. 50 million people died around the world, and uh, conditions were just terrible. There was very little medical care accessible to people. Uh, there wasn't enough food available. Uh, you know, there wasn't the kind of communication that we have now, obviously. People couldn't keep in touch with family and loved ones other than those in the, in the home. Uh, there were bodies literally piling up uh, in homes on the street. There weren't enough wagons to take them away. There weren't enough caskets. There weren't enough burial sites. They had to resort to mass graves. You know, just horrendous circumstances. And so as bad as things are now, I think we can be very grateful that we have many elements in our culture and our technology that are so helpful to us. Uh, You know, just the fact that we're able to do this radio program, people are staying in touch by Skype and, and meeting by Zoom and and, and able to get medical care if they need it. Uh, so things are much, much better than they could be, and we all should be very grateful about that. It's, and the second it's interesting. When, uh, before you go yeah, on go to ahead. the second Sorry. one, I just kind of uh, – that. Uh, well, I just want to respond to that because my grandparents lived through the uh, pandemic of 1918, and they were actually, I think, in their mm. early 30s. And, you know, they never once mentioned it. And uh, this is just, this is, I'm just kind of commenting, and I never thought about it, obviously. And, uh, you know, they didn't die until I was in college. So, but they never, ever mentioned the pandemic. And So interesting, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think and, you hear about um, about individuals who, who uh, went to war in the, in the Second World War or, uh, you know, it could be even be Vietnam or the Korean War before that. And a lot of times, uh, those people have, they may have PTSD, and they often don't talk about it. So, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. Uh, and, you know, I think we've, we've sort of forgotten about that pandemic. Now we're reminded of it, but I think a lot of people didn't ask their uh, grandparents or great-grandparents, what have you, about it. But, uh, you know, imagine that, 
your children, and I don't know if you have grandkids, but, you know, they're living through this now. They're, they're not going to forget this. This is something they're going to remember their whole lives. And, and uh, you know, hopefully their children and grandchildren will ask them about it because I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned. And there's a lot of, as you say, there's a lot more information out there and you can go online and all those kinds of things, which obviously you couldn't in the pandemic of uh, 1918. But uh, yeah, I have a three grandchildren, a set of twins who are two and a four-year-old, four and a half. He will remember. I'm not sure that the two-year-olds will remember. Um, Probably not, unless no. this goes on for a couple of more years. Yeah. Right. So the second but, you know, acceptance. People can yeah, go online and uh, just let me say that I'm sorry to interrupt, but people can go yeah. online and learn about the pandemic of 1918. And there, there is some footage and uh, some wonderful documentaries online. So, you know, I think that would be something of interest to a lot of your listeners to do that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very helpful. Uh, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So acceptance, that's the next, right? Yes. So I, 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 as the serenity prayer would have us know, and, and I think it's something that is uh, central to many philosophies and religions, uh, we, we need to discern between what we can change and what we can't change. And uh, for those things that we can't change, we need to really sit with it and open our hearts and, and bring that discomfort in. Uh, you know, the world is just not the way we want it to be. Uh, even under the best of times, there are circumstances that don't exactly suit us. And unless we accept those circumstances and accept those things that we can't influence significantly, we're just resisting. And resistance brings suffering. And, you know, acceptance can be looked at as the opposite of resistance. And so in the game practice, we actually, uh, as part of our morning contemplation, which can be as little as three minutes, that's the next phase. We, we focus on our breathing, and then we go to gratitude, and then we go to acceptance. And we contemplate those things that cause us to suffer, that cause us to want to resist. And we don't resist them. We open our hearts, and we, we bring that feeling closer and closer. Oftentimes, when we bring it close and we sort of merge with it, we realize there's really not that much there. When we allow the layers to kind of fall away and become unveiled, there's there's often not much there. You know, the, the death and suffering everywhere in the world in the pandemic and even beforehand, uh, there's always a war going on somewhere and famine and, and, and persecution. And we can't change those things. And, and unless we see that as part of life and therefore accept and stop resisting it, resisting our feelings, uh, you know, we will not be truly resilient and happy. And so I think we can sit with that, focus on it, and make great progress toward acceptance. Yeah, I think acceptance is, at least for me, and I think as a culture, maybe you can talk about this, because America, our culture, our Western culture, really does, really kind of go, goes against that belief of, a, of acceptance. And it's so critical. We're always resisting. If we don't like something, we have to change it. We have to do something differently. We have to resolve and solve. And we're not, and, and really, I think we fight acceptance. I mean, particularly in the Western culture. I, I, I don't know if, I, as opposed to like Eastern thought or Eastern philosophy. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um you know, we fight back a lot. And, and, you know, acceptance does not mean 
uh, inaction or, uh, you know, lethargy. It, it, it means discerning between the things we can change and the things we cannot change. And so the things that we can change, you know, we, we have to think about also and make a decision as to the best approach. You know, certainly being reactive is not generally a good thing. But uh, so we do contemplate those things that we can change in the process of that discernment between what we can and cannot change. And so uh, it's not complacent. Um, those things that we can change, we need to sit with and, and really contemplate what tack we want to take and so that we're not being destructive, but rather constructive. So it, it's really both the things we can and cannot change that we must consider very carefully. And, and, and I think you're correct about the fact that in our culture, we tend to value resistance in some way. It's, it's, it's kind of an ambiguous thing, yeah. but, uh, you know, we value being fighters, which is not always the right way to be. Yeah. We have, we have, four, we have like three minutes left, so we have intention and non-judgment. At least we can get maybe to intention, and then everybody has sure. to buy the book. And uh, Yeah, intention just means that uh, we, we should understand that we can, through, through our purposefulness, our intention, we can rewire our brains because we have a negativity bias and we tend to view things in a negative manner. We tend to focus on what we don't have instead of what we do have. And that goes to gratitude, but it also goes to our intention because we can change the way we think. And a great example of that, Catherine, is a program at Duke called Three Good Things. And in a nutshell, all it means is that every evening when you're preparing to go to bed, you're, you're, you're turning down the covers or what have you, uh, just think of three good things that happened to you during the day, and there are always good things that happened. And and this radio discussion with you, Catherine, getting to know you a little bit, even before we went on the air, will be one of my three good things today. And this oh. practice of thinking of three good things before we go to sleep actually helps us sleep better and makes us happier people, and they've shown that through longitudinal studies at Duke. And so that's an example of using our intention and adopting a practice of rewiring the brain away from our negativity bias toward a more positive outlook. And that brings resilience and happiness as well. So that's the I in gain is intention. That's great. It's been great talking to you today. And uh, uh, that is definitely will be one of my three good things of the day too as well. I thank you so much. This was a great interview. Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. And, and, and Dr. Hammer, can you give us a website that we can go to for, to well, learn more about Well, you can go to greghammermd.com. Yeah. That's G-R-E-G-H-A-M-M-E-R-M-D.com. The book can be found on Amazon, and uh, it will be followed by another book, uh, which is for everybody. It's just sort of a primer. Uh, the ebook is on Amazon. I'm hoping that the paper version will be there today or tomorrow. It was supposed to be there last Friday. Great, great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Anytime, Catherine. It's been a great pleasure meeting you and speaking with you. Great. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 